Happy New Year. Welcome back to the CapEx podcast. I'm Alice Denby, editor of CapEx. And in this episode, we're just going to have a bit of a look ahead to what the next year holds. We're expecting a general election this autumn, of course. But before then, we've got six more months or so of fairly fractious conservative government. And to discuss what that might look like, I'm delighted to be joined by research director at the Centre for Policy Studies, Carl Williams. Carl, welcome. Thank you for joining me. Hello, Alice. Here we are. Parliament's just returned this week. What are the biggest issues it's going to be facing? Well, the biggest issue in the short term, of course, is going to be the return of the Rwanda bill to the Commons and the ability of the government to manage the fissures in the Conservative Party around that. And remind us a bit about what some of the difficulties have been around this bill and why it's causing so many headaches for Rishi Sunak right now. Fundamentally, the right of the party is worried that it doesn't go far enough in bridging or exempting us from ECHR commitments. So it won't actually work in getting Rwanda up and working and stopping the crossings. Whereas the left of the party is worried that this actually breaches Britain's international obligations, puts us at odds with institutions we signed up to. So it's a, in a way, a sort of institutionalist versus anti-institutionalist divide. And who do you think is right? What I mean, I'm not expecting you to predict what international institutions might have to say. Fundamentally, why is this bill important? Fundamentally, an offshoring scheme is central plank to any effective deterrent strategy, which is what our immigration asylum policy needs to be based on. To be clear, it's necessary, but not sufficient, but it is absolutely necessary. But I mean, isn't one major reason why some of the irregular arrivals have come down is because of an agreement we made with Albania, for example? I mean, doesn't Rishi Sunak actually have quite a good story to tell about how he has managed to control or reduce illegal migration to some degree? And yet he seems to have put so much political capital on this particular bill, even when it's very unlikely that he's going to be able to get any planes taking off to Rwanda before the next election. And when to such a large extent, whether that happens or not, is out of his hands, it's in the hands of international institutions and the courts and and all of those things. There's so many points to address there, Alice. The first thing I'd say is it is kind of out of their hands at the moment, but they could take that back. And that's what a lot of the fight is over. Does the bill go far enough to take back those powers to Parliament? A lot of MPs seem to think it doesn't, and that includes, of course, Swallow Braverman and Robert Jenrick, Jenrick famously resigning over the issue, and they're going to be privileged for information were not from the Home Office, briefings on the outcomes of the court cases. And if that view is right, then it seems very unlikely there will be flights before the election because we'll have a whole you know, rigmarole of going for our courts again and then being challenged in the CHR. And then, crucially, even if the collective overall policy is fine, individuals will be able to challenge themselves being central around by going to the ECHR. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the things that I think the original Rwanda flight that prevented it taking off was every single individual on that plane had an individual claim, whatever reason it might be, mental health, family connections, whatever it might be, to get them taken off at the last minute. That happened with a lot of people on the flight, but ultimately it was the Rule 39 injunction from Strasbourg, the pyjama injunction, Mm. which stopped the flights originally. Although, yes, the individual cases did whittle the numbers down. To go back to something you said previously about does Rishi Sunak have a more positive story to tell because of the Albanian deal and so on. To some extent, yes, crossings were down by about 12,000 last year, which incidentally is about the number of Albanians who crossed the year before. You know, he can turn around and say, look, this shows that deterrence worked. If people arrive here and know that they won't be able to stay here, most of them won't make the journey. And of course, you could argue, well, it's coming from Albania versus Eritrea or whatever. But a lot of evidence we've heard from you know, interviews with people on the beaches and so on suggest that deterrent would work if they thought it was there. You can kind of see why he wants to double down on this policy and make it work because you've got this evidence base that it, actually it does work. 
make the point that, yes, you can do all the interdiction you want and we can work with the French and other European police and intelligence services as we have been doing this for the last few years. But you rightly say, they say, you know, this, it's whack-a-mole. You dismantle one gang and you want to peers because the, the startup costs and this are so low. You know, can you smuggle some rugby genius to the French coast? There you go. This is, of course, a huge problem for Labour and Keir Starmer claims that his approach will be this kind of law and order framework. You can see why that's how he's approaching it as a former DPP, going to smash the gangs. He's going to sort of approach it in that way. But I think it's pretty clear that that's not going to be enough. It's very clearly not. And they've kind of ruled out the Rwanda policy. Although I think if somehow conservatives could get it up and running beforehand, Labour will probably just you know, leave it there and ignore it and let, hope it does the work. And if it's not up and running, as it probably won't be now, they're going to be tempted, as they've briefed before, to try and reach an agreement with Europe. And it seems likely if they do that, there's going to be a quid pro quo that we're taking migrants from you know, other countries in Europe, from the frontier somewhere. I'd be very surprised if the net result of that is not to see the actual numbers arriving here through these you know, safe and legal routes increasing massively. And we have to remember that you know, everyone calling for, well, we, if we had safe and legal routes, this would sort the problem. Well, we already have safe and legal routes. We've taken in hundreds of thousands of people from places like Ukraine and Syria over the last few years. But at the end of the day, there are hundreds of millions of people. There's good polling data around this. There's good studies of like sort of demographics and economic growth and how this affects migration trends. There are hundreds of millions of people who would move here if they could. And ultimately, whatever systems we have in place, there needs to be a cap to manage this. And as soon as there's a cap in place, there's an incentive for people who are going to make the cut to try and work around it. Obviously, illegal migration and asylum are the sort of very visible, the sharp end, shall we say, of the immigration debate for reasons of both fairness and because I think people are morally outraged by the spectacle of people dying in the channel, as they should be. But of course, that's actually the tip of the migration iceberg. There are many, many more people who come here by perfectly legal routes that were deliberately designed post-Brexit by a Conservative government, which has yielded almost a million people a year coming here by perfectly legal routes. Surely that is a much bigger problem for the government. I mean, yeah, if you, if you look at the net migration stats last year, 745,000 probably was revised up again, 15 times the number crossing the channel. It's funny because the Conservative Party 2019 promised overall numbers will come down. And then they've stumbled into this incredibly liberal migration system, which has opened all sorts of new routes for people to come here mm-hmm. or reestablish old routes, which were closed down under the coalition, something that the graduate visa here, not just routes, but incentives for people to come here. Is there anything to be said for the graduate visa? I mean, I remember when it was brought in by Boris Johnson, of course, this is, you know, we're going to attract the brightest and best from around the world. This is global Britain. This is Brexit in action. A more restricted version of it, perhaps. The problem is our higher education sector is fundamentally broken. And we have a lot of very poor quality universities basically sustaining themselves by selling visas rather than selling education. And the Times did a great story on this a few weeks ago where they highlighted all the universities from the North Midlands who've got London campuses. Mm. And I used to, when I worked in the city, commute past one of these all the time. I think, actually, I won't know many names. But and yeah, it was always completely dead. This is a point that Neil O'Brien's been making very strongly. It's kind of the delivery visa route. There is a kind of strain of thought on the sort of free market liberal side of things that says that immigration is good for growth, good for the economy, and we should have as much of it as possible. The last 25 years have been an unprecedented experiment in mass migration. 25 years before Blair came to power, net migration cumulatively was 68,000 people. And 25 years afterwards, it was about 5.9 million people. That period, for the last 15 years, has also coincided with the slowest period of productivity growth in two and a half centuries. So I think the onus is on the pro-migration people to explain why this is so. Maybe it's not causation, maybe it's just coincidence, correlation. 
I think the evidence points in the other direction at the moment. Well, if you are listening and you have an answer to that, please do get in touch. I'm very, very happy to hear from you. How much do we think that this creates difficulties for Labour? Because it's pretty clear, I think, that they don't really have an answer on this. And yet there they are 20 points ahead in the polls. Yeah, I mean, on migration, they're torn between where a lot of their voters or potential voters might be and where their activist base and actually a lot of the parliamentary party are. As you say, they've sort of a massive poll lead and that's less because of, I think, anything good they're doing, more just people are fed up of the Tories and the trust government. That was a sort of a bit of a Black Wednesday moment. We've lost the reputation for economic confidence, competence that was so carefully built up again during the coalition years. And actually, a lot of ordinary voters, they, you know, normal people who don't pay attention to politics in the obsessive way you and I do, the sense is, you know, we need to change. But then people who are more engaged and on the right look sort of part to say, well, actually, what have you achieved in 13 years? Maybe not a whole lot, but it feels like there's so much that was undone. All the promise of Brexit and the change that the vote for change there has not been delivered. COVID, Ukraine and so on, but that's, that's only a partial explanation. Mm, so is immigration therefore more of a dividing line within the Conservative Party than it might be for voters or when it comes to choosing who to vote for at the election? I'm not sure that's the case. If you look at the UF polling tracker, 62% of voters say immigration has been too high over the last decade. It's fairly consistent at that level. I mean, it's, it's about 80 to 90% of your Conservative voters. I suppose, therefore, more the issue is that they're looking at the Conservative Party and thinking, yeah, yeah, well, the parliamentary party versus yeah, the voters and the, the activists. They're, they're saying, like the, you know, you're talking about immigration more than Labour might do, but your record shows that you've yeah. not controlled the numbers. Yeah, but of course, Labour are going to be keen to keep the conversation on the economy because at the moment, that's where they're going to feel stronger. Everyone blames the Conservatives for the highest level of inflation in 30 years, the highest tax burden since yeah. the Second World War, or at least since 1951. And I suppose that brings us on to the next big event in the political calendar, which would be the budget on March the 6th. Yeah. What are you expecting to see? Jeremy Hunt's been hinting at some tax cuts. We're expecting, leaving aside whatever might happen in the Red Sea or the Middle East, an improving or kind of slightly better but fairly flat economic picture. Yeah, I suppose like inflation continuing to, to moderate and return towards that 2% target. Um, and then perhaps interest rates coming down later in the year. On economic growth, there's so many uncertainties, which I don't really know. It feels like we're going to continue to sort of bumble along in the 0.1% growth, at least on the GDP level, but that being diluted on a per capita level. Slightly more positivity on the surface, but all those deep structural problems with the British economy, which are driving some of these cost of living pressures, are still there. So what do you think, if Jeremy Hunt does find some magical fiscal headroom, what taxes do you think he'll be targeting? It sounds like he's going for broad-based taxes like income tax, having already done some cuts to national insurance, which are coming to effect this month. Of course, we have to remember that a lot of that is, you know, he's taking with one hand, he's giving back some with the other because of the fiscal drag. You know, tax cuts, I think we'd probably like to see a more targeted, perhaps things like stamp duty, things that have a very large distortionary effect on economic activity, giving the state of the housing market at the moment, you know, anything we can do to stimulate the supply side of that by removing frictions in the system, it's got to be a good thing. And if he does manage to cut some taxes superficially, are people going to feel any better off when it comes to the autumn when we might see a general election called? It's hard to know because there's often such a disconnect between headline stats and what people are feeling on the ground. And it's easy to point out oh, inflation's only 4% now, but fundamentally your yogurt from the supermarket is still 75p more expensive than you remember it being two years ago. That memory doesn't fade easily. Yes, people have a bit more money in their pockets after some straightened times. 
will they think, oh, let's stick with this. It's getting better. Let's, let's change. Maybe. But again, I come back to the idea that people are just a bit fed up and maybe willing to take that change and hope for, you know, what Labour have been briefing as like the, the stability premium mm. of the Starmer government, you know, more stability after Tory chaos and to bring back business investment and economic confidence. And I'm a bit sceptical of this narrative, but you can see why they're pushing it. Yeah, I do. But what I don't really understand, so Rachel Reeve talks about securonomics. I don't really know what that is. Can you explain? There is a great term for this used by, I think, uh, Maxwell over at ASI, supply-side social democracy. Right. They're trying to buy into the growth narrative, making the argument we need to drive growth and that needs to be through investment. But that investment is going to be driven by state spending, protectionist measures, nationalised energy companies, that sort of thing. And partly this is a response to the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States and to Europe's response to that and the Green New Deal and China's long history of using its state companies to manipulate energy markets more, or rather commodity markets, which then feed into energy markets in particular. And it's the sense that, okay, if we're, if we're going to do net zero in the energy transition, let's capture some of the benefits of this. And there's so many fallacies to unpack in this. I know you <laughs> have some great writers in CapEx to do that. You know, the idea that jobs are a benefit, not a cost. Yeah. You know, we, we, we want as much energy for as few jobs as we can so more people can be other, doing other productive things. The whole labour take on net zero is, is no, it must create jobs, even if actually it means prices at the switch are higher for the consumer. Yeah. And I think what I find frustrating is that, you know, however much Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves talk about growth, you know, sometimes he even mentions Margaret Thatcher. Every single thing that they actually announce, everything that's concrete is just a further expansion of the state. That's the axiomatic instinct is that the state can fix this, whether it's a nationalised energy company or putting children in school from the age of one. Yep. I suppose from our perspective, the one vague chink of light here might be if they do something on housing and planning mm. reform. And what are they saying on, on that? What can we expect potentially in a manifesto from Labour well, on housing? They, they seem to understand the problem is fundamentally a supply problem, first and foremost, and a demand, interest rates, finance access problem secondarily. They still don't accept the truth on how migration's adding pressure there. Clearly, they want to build more houses. The worry there is great, but are they going to insist that a lot of these are social houses? Are they going to do other things alongside this that are going to offset some of the impact? So, yeah, we're going to be worried about rent controls. London's rental market is already such a mess. Can you imagine what it'd be like if they mm. impose rent controls? Though I think they have sort of slapped Sadiq Khan down a bit on that, haven't they? A little bit. But then you have to remember that, unlike the Conservatives, where a lot of their voters are homeowners, for Labour, a lot of their core votes are renters. So that pressure is going to remain there. And the question is, is Rachel Reeves and Darren Jones and so on, and the people around Starmer, are they sufficiently economically literate to understand how terrible rent controls would be and how much worse that would make things? Mm. Who knows? So, I mean, we have been sort of skirting around the general election, not looking positive for the Conservatives. But if we had our way, if the Centre for Policy Studies and CapEx could design a Conservative manifesto, what do you think we'd like to see in it? Really great glad you brought this up because we will be putting out a sort of these are our 10 key policy areas we want to see action on in the not too distant future. Lots of these are housing planning reform, so committing to building 1.5 million homes of course the next parliament, fundamental tax reform, eliminating lots of the weird marginal rates, taxing households where relevant on a family basis, the way almost every other developed country does, we don't. And that can really introduce some distortions and penalise people unfairly in the system. You could have two parents, for example, both earning £99,000, but the minute one goes over the 100k mark, they lose all entitlement to 
free childcare. Yeah, there's things like that. There's things like there's very different tax rates if you just got one earner in the household earning two hundred thousand pounds. Yeah, we're using big numbers here, but these also apply lower down the income scale too. Of course, want to see some more sensible immigration policy, proper supply side reform of childcare. That's one of the core cost of living pressures. We have a massively overregulated sector. Labour will clearly make that worse. I think Conservatives need to commit to you know childcare ratios, some of the really really over the top health and safety stuff that goes with kind of nurseries. And Planning sort of is part of this as well. There are absurd rules about operating a childcare business out of your home, for example. Planning is always at the root of all. Yeah, that's, that's part of it. I mean, returning to the planning theme and linking this to sort of the science and tech super ambitions, build on some of this space in Cambridge, do the same in Oxford, parts of London. If we're not going to do the full Oxcam arc, at least reinforce these areas, which are really driving growth, innovation. And- One thing I would say on childcare, it does create difficulty on the immigration front because it used to be the case that you could get sort of foreign students or au pairs to look after your children, but that has now been stymied by the minimum income thresholds. These two things are not necessarily, do not necessarily go hand in hand, controlling immigration and reducing the cost of living people. Indeed. I mean, there are fiscal pressures that you have to recognise if you are going to bring immigration numbers down. And I think, again, I mentioned Neil O'Brien, he's been making this point on social care that actually, if the priority of reducing health and care visas is bumping up the pay of social carers by even just a pound an hour, Cost a couple of billion, but that is probably a, a trade-off worth making in the long run in terms of upskilling the domestic workforce and reducing some of those pressures on the capital stock. What do you think from what Labour have said about what they might put in a manifesto? What do you think should be the sort of key issues that people who care about markets and choice and rolling back the state should be worried about? On the energy sector, there's a few very big things to worry about there. Firstly, going back to nationalised energy companies. You know, back to the literally dark days of the 1970s. Unfortunately, the Conservatives set the precedent with I mean, windfall taxes is maybe not quite the accurate technical term, but extremely high tax rates on energy companies, particularly on the North Sea. And some of their commitments to net zero, you know, just to show that they're even more green than the Conservatives, mm-hmm. they've gone completely unrealistic, like decarbonising the electricity grid by 2030 instead of 2035. Experts like Dieter Hound, this is completely mad, impossible, about absolutely crushing living standards and a massive amount of state intervention in the lives of individuals in terms of you know, how much you could drive, how much energy you consume, the, you know, the logical implications of this. You'd have to crush demand because they refuse to increase supply. All right. Well, that was a fairly depressing prospectus for the country, but it is going to be a year of progress and reflection on past achievements for the Centre for Policy Studies and for CapEx, which of course are celebrating their 50th and 10th anniversaries respectively this year. It's been interesting thinking about the history of this organisation. We were, of course, founded in 1974, a real inflection point in history, a point when the kind of post-war consensus has been a failure, essentially. And people, figures like Keith Joseph and Margaret Thatcher are rethinking how Britain should be governed, essentially. And it does feel a bit like 50 years later, we're at a similar point. Yeah, I think this is one of my, one of the things that keeps me going, thinking, okay, we might be in our like 1974 now. But then in five years' time, we could get a 1979 and mm. that conservative counter-revolution we need. Downstairs on the wall at the Centre for Policy Studies, we've got uh, Margaret Thatcher, the CPS is where our conservative revolution began. Mm. And yes, it is a really exciting time for us. We're doing lots of things around our 50th anniversary. Fermenting revolution. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things we're doing, we have Lord Frost with us working on Stepping Stones 2. So for those listeners who don't know, Stepping Stones was a 
policy document produced by John Hoskins, who went on to be Thatcher's head of the number 10 policy unit, and Norman Strauss in 1977. Uh, it was famous for its wiring diagram, which was a, a condensed version of how all the different economic problems Britain was facing at the time connected up. You could work out what bits you needed to pull out and attack to try and start fixing the problems. Of course, the power of the unions was at the heart of a lot mm. of this, and ultimately they were successful there. That diagnosis helped it, and of course, there was lots of sort of tactical twisting and turning to get to the end, but it gave them that clarity of vision to know what problems we needed to fix. And with Stepping Stones 2, we hope to have the same outcome, a vision of where the fundamental problems are and what we can start doing to unpick them. And without any kind of spoilers, what do we think are emerging as the major problems that need to be fixed? Well, I wouldn't want to uh, <laughs> <laughs> not give too much away at this stage. I think people have to wait until we uh, publish the document. Yeah, having seen some early drafts of what the sort of causal web diagram might look like, suffice to say it is extremely comprehensive and extremely interesting. And it's going to be fun to continue uh, working with Lord Frost on that. I'm sure we'll return to speak about that. I'm absolutely sure we will. But of course, we're doing lots of other things this year as well. Well, absolutely. I, mean, I think one of the things that's been interesting for me to reflecting on the last 50 years of history of CPS and CapEx is that you, know, despite the sort of in many ways, transformative success of the Thatcher revolution. It does not seem to have made people any more receptive to free market principles or ideas. And of course, in the intervening time, we've had the financial crash, which I think caused a big crisis of confidence in capitalism. And it was after that that CapEx was founded to sort of remake again the case for all the things that we have been talking about, markets and competition and choice. But it seems being on the cusp of a Labour government, that once again, we need to be remaking these arguments. The fundamental problem is the arguments for capitalism and free markets are less intuitive than the arguments for state planning and control. And I don't want to go into a big sort of digression or like a high F and so on, but there is a fundamental point that it is often not intuitive to work out how a market and other emergent orders can coordinate, decentralise information, crucially the market, prices which contain knowledge about supply and demand. And therefore, getting the attention of people who may be able to make these slightly nuanced epistemological arguments can be quite hard. And it's quite hard to convey them in a condensed way, especially in the age of the soundbite and social media. Mm. And then if we're left just making the moral argument for capitalism and free markets, and there's a very, very strong case for that. I mean, of course, Rob Colville, director of the Centre for Policy Studies, Fantastic little publication essay, The Morality of Growth, which I urge everyone to read. But also the left have a very strong moral language they can pour around this, and a different set of values to what we just bows, you know, equality rather than freedom, etc. But it's somewhere where we really have struggled for decades and decades and decades to deploy winning arguments that can solidify the result of the Thatcher revolution, for example. Mm. Well, this is exactly why people need to keep listening to the CapEx podcast, keep subscribing Absolutely, yes. to the CapEx newsletter and keep reading for the next 10 to 50 years. Well, I think that's a, a more positive note on which to end. Carl, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, Alex. And thank you for listening. Happy New Year. Happy New Year.